love it. Well, Mission Hills, um, I'm sad that I cannot see your faces right now, but I can see all of the spots that your bodies have filled in this space, and I see this divide. So when we come back, all y'all better be switching up the sides because this whole left church, right church thing isn't going to happen anymore. But um, even in the midst of all of the chaos that's happening, um, I'm just grateful that we can use technology to gather together, um, even if it's virtually. So I think one of my favorite parts of Sunday is that I'm going to miss is the discussion time that we have before we jump into the message. And so I have a question for you. And so if you have someone nearby to share it with or you want to just think about it yourself, leave some comments, all of that good stuff. Um, the question for this week is, what is your first memory of being in the dark? And that might mean literally, figuratively, however you take that question. Um, this week's lectionary text comes from John 9, 1 through 41. I'm not going to read that all because it's basically the length of my sermon in general. Um, and then we're also going to be working through a text that comes from Ephesians 5, 8 through 14. And so with the John text, I'm going to focus on those first 12 or so verses and then that passage from Ephesians. For me, though, um, while it's not my first memory I have of being in the dark, it's definitely the memory that has stuck with me the most. I was a bit of a devious, rebellious child, to say the least. I could say that I've never quite matched the expected. When I was young, I attended Awana weekly, which was this Bible study game time that met on Wednesdays after school, providing a space for biblical study, worship, and getting out all my pent-up energy before dinner. Each week would progress as follows. Bible study, worship, game time. Good. One particular Wednesday, though, a friend of mine and I schemed that we would leave Bible study early while everyone was praying and be the first ones up to the sanctuary for worship, playing a game of hide-and-seek that our leaders didn't know that we were playing. I loved worship time, and probably because of all the hand motions. I don't know if you all remember wave after wave, all of those good mems. But as planned, my friend and I ran up the stairs with all of our strength and made it to the sanctuary. But the door was still locked, and the entire sanctuary and welcome hall were dark, so we had to figure out a new plan of hiding out until everyone made it upstairs. We decided that we would hide behind this weird L-shaped welcome desk that was outside of the sanctuary. We thought we'd hit it well, except for the moment that we heard the footsteps. We ducked even tighter, closing our eyes, thinking, if we can't see them, they can't see us, right? It felt like hours, but it was probably 30 seconds. All of a sudden, the light above us turns on. We're caught. The light has exposed our terrible hiding job, or maybe not. The light turns off again, and the footsteps recede. Still to this day, I have no idea if we were caught, and whoever the footsteps belonged to just didn't care. Not sure. But I want to start with these passages uh, with a caveat of breaking down 
the dichotomies of light and dark and blindness and sight. Somewhere along the line, this became toxic. Light and darkness came to be associated with the tone of one's skin, equating that same positive-negative, good-evil dichotomy along the way. The same dichotomy exists with ability, comparing sight with goodness, and blindness with corruption and sin. And we know that the Bible is often littered with phrases, verses, etc., that are neither helpful nor affirming of all people. And while we learn what we can from the context and the message intended, we also want to hold it and ourselves accountable for bias and exclusion. So I could talk about this for hours, but I know most of you want to get back to your Netflix binge after this, so I'll save that for another space, but if you do want to talk more about that, I would love to. The picture that is painted for us throughout much of the biblical text is that darkness is associated with negative things. Sin, suffering, separation. You think of the veil that is coming Good Friday, you think of the moments of darkness and separation. The light overcomes and reveals these things, thus changing the narrative. There are hundreds of references of light as positive and darkness as negative. But I would like to spend this morning or afternoon or whatever time you're listening to this podcast, uh, reframing this dichotomy of light and darkness to allow for a third space the beauty of examining and being in the darkness. Darkness is a necessary and beautiful part of faith. We know that there exists much more than just strict black and white, complete darkness and complete light. Dusk and dawn have always completed a much more inclusive and long spectrum. There's so much more than just this binary and this is a space that we're invited into. I know that fire is a sensitive topic out here in California, and I'm not kidding you when I tell you that my first week of living in LA, I received the warm welcome of an earthquake and driving by two different forest fires. But in the Midwest, where I come from, it's not uncommon to see controlled burns of certain areas, which actually help the ecosystem and revitalize the area. However, the danger comes with wildfires, uncontrolled, all-consuming. I think for us, controlled burning is a necessary part of faith, just like darkness, and it can be painful to be left with the ashes of previously held beliefs or practices that no longer function to serve us or our communities. The fire creates the darkness of ash, which ultimately leads to growth and healing. In the text, Jesus uses mud and probably the most broy move of spit to heal this man's eyes. Can you just imagine for a second with me watching Jesus spit into his hand and say, hey, use this. Right now in the midst of the current health crisis, I'm sure that would receive an extra shudder, but hey, whatever it takes to make a miracle, right? I love what Jesus does here, though, because mud comes from the dirt, comes from the dust. It is through the application of dark, muddy dust that Jesus heals. In high school, I had a teacher named Bob. He was my biology teacher, and one of his favorite lessons was about our immune systems. Even when you're sick, as long as your immune system is working, you're not dead. He called it winning. 
So anytime we were sick, but we're still in class, still living and staying alive, he'd come to us and say, you're winning with every oomph that he could muster. With suffering and grief, when you have your immune system in place, when you're examining the places in your life that you haven't before, when you're talking about the darkness that you're dealing with and not keeping it a secret, when you're taking action against the darkness of injustice, you're winning. You cannot rush this process. You cannot rush the sickness out of your body if you hope to heal fully. Unfortunately, right now, we also can't rush this vaccine to come about any faster. However, it's at least given us an opportunity to slow down and take pause. There's so much more beauty in that space of darkness than we perhaps give credit to our grief, our sense of suffering. As you walk through the passage in John, you see that the timeline reveals that this man's greatest act of faith was while he was still in the dark. He believed what Jesus was saying about what would become true even before he received his sight. His greatest act of faith was actually in listening and not in seeing. I don't mean to glorify suffering, but as our dearest Richard Rohr supplies, the darkness of this world will never totally go away. I've lived long enough and offered spiritual direction enough to know that darkness isn't going to disappear. But that, as John's gospel says, the light shines on inside of the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. This is our own belief in paradox and mystery, the Christian form of yin and yang. We must all hope and work to eliminate suffering, especially in many of the great social issues of our time. We work to eliminate world hunger. We strive to stop wasting the Earth's resources. We peacefully fight to end violence. We don't ignore or capitulate to suffering, yet we must allow it to transform us and the world. Suffering often shapes and teaches us and precedes most significant resurrections. The power of suffering is surely our creative and courageous relationship to it. We were talking about resurrection on Wednesday during our virtual meeting and gathering about the universal Christ. And resurrection can look so many different ways. And I think that as we apply it to our own community, we also have to look at this new understanding of what suffering is. I did something maybe stupid, maybe smart, this week by social distancing myself all the way to the Santa Monica Mountains. If I have to be away from community, I'm at least going to give myself breaks of going out to where I feel most myself. As I drove, I drove through a rainstorm that I hoped would stop by the time I got there because I had already come out so far to get to this hike. As I started hiking, the path that I was on felt like it literally straddled the line between the storm clouds on one side and the sunlight peeking through fluffy white clouds on the other. In order for me to see the truth of the light as much as the truth of the dark clouds, I needed that juxtaposition between the two. The mountain needs the valley to maintain its identity. It does not erase the forests or the cliffs, but to call one thing a summit, it needs a low point to compare it to. 
The beauty of the valley can only be seen from the top of the mountain, and the grandeur of the summit can only be surveyed from below. I think that roar points to the possibility that comes from what we have named as darkness. The space of Len invites us to re-examine the dark rooms of our lives. When I used to do the reflection that we'll do in just a minute, um, I, I would include examples of the dark room, maybe containing a list of all of your sins and asking what Jesus' reaction would be, or perhaps the darkest memories of your life and what it would feel like to give that over to God. Here, I don't mean to make the comparison that dark means negative or sinful, but if you're like me, there might be a corner of wherever you reside full of a box or two or 20 that you haven't opened in a while. You haven't opened that closet in a while or given yourself space to examine the grief that's lived inside of you. Perhaps being trapped by quarantine and social distancing is at least an opportunity to invite some early spring cleaning of house and home, of mind and body. In that, I'd invite you to get comfortable, to find a space, to settle in for a reflection. The language I'll use is still pretty Jesus-y and definitely has evangelical undertones, but as we go on, if there's more helpful language to you individually, I'd invite you to think of that instead. If instead of Jesus, you'd prefer God or love, etc., whatever feels most comfortable, I invite you into a space of reflection. As you settle in, find your heartbeat, find your breath. Notice if you're holding any tension in your body. Imagine your heart. What does it look like? Where is it in relation to your body? What does it feel like? What is it filled with today? If you were to look inside your heart, is there anything there that you wish wasn't? Is there anything not there that you wish it was? Imagine your feelings inside your heart. What fills it? Imagine emotions and feelings of acceptance, of joy, of courage, of tender, of loving. What comes up for you when you think those things? Does your heart change? Imagine emotions of anger, disconnect, embarrassment, shame. What comes up for you when you think those things? Does your heart change? Are those two worlds separated or overlap? Find your picture of your heart again. 
imagine Jesus? Where is he in relation to you? Imagine that there is a room in which you are holding all of those boxes, whether it be of anxiety or pain, the past or the future. A room that you haven't turned the light on in a long time or examined deeply. What is it filled with for you? What is Jesus' response? What is love's response to your dark room? Does he say anything? What does he do? What do you do? You return to your image of your heart. Do you see anything? What do you do? What do you feel? When you're ready, you can start to wiggle your fingers again. Bring yourself back to your body, feeling if there's any change. Are you more relaxed? More tense? Are you holding your shoulders tightly? Is your jaw clenched? Take stock and let go of any tension again. The first time I did this exercise, it had very different language and I was in an extremely evangelical church group. The exercise guided us to invite Jesus into our heart and see his reaction to us, our sin, etc. When I imagine Jesus, I imagine him and I sitting down for coffee, which I can tell you he is just as much of a coffee snob as I am. I poured out my heart and he simply invited me to keep processing with him. He wasn't afraid of anything that I considered darkness. I think this example, cheesy as it is, still can paint a picture of the space that we can occupy as we approach suffering, hurt, and hardship in our lives. Healing in our own lives isn't as fluid or straightforward as the bell curves you've probably seen predicting the future of the coronavirus. It's much more all over the place, might be three steps forward, two steps back, two steps forward, three steps back. And healing has different definitions. It might mean becoming comfortable with your edges. It might mean making it through the day. It might mean processing with a therapist, which if you are looking for different resources, there are a ton of online counseling options being offered, especially for LGBTQ folks right now. Um, And I'll post some links in the blog as well for that. It might mean a breakthrough in how you communicate your needs to someone or even just asking for help right now. It might mean giving yourself permission to question your beliefs. Whatever it means, though, it might still feel dark, but it is a space of opportunity and not one that you have to be alone in. 
So as we approach the second half of Lent, wherever we are, I'd like to call us deeper into our intentionality in the season. While Easter and longer daylight and resurrection might be around the corner, time seems to be slipping through our fingers faster than ever. We're still called to slow down to what I believe is the pace of Jesus. I don't think he took the quick route anywhere or in anything he did. For all the fear and panic in the world right now, I think there's also an opportunity for some revolutionary change too. In order to achieve that, I think it's going to continue to look like slowing down and taking stock. Personally, I know that I stay busy, and I shared this with the group on Wednesday, to avoid dealing with painful emotions or working through stuff that I need to. For other people, it might be sleep or repression in other ways. So instead, let's ask questions of ourselves and of others. And I'm sure many of you are already doing this and taking stock. But what kind of people do we want to be on the other side, whether it be of Lent, of this pandemic? What kind of people do we want to be right now? What kind of society do we want to belong to? And how can we use this time to take stock of where it's not measuring up? I look around right now and see all of the gaps of how people aren't being supported, how there's no infrastructure in place to protect and hold a society when something like this happens, how everything comes back to how productive people can be and how much we can produce and consume. As we continue to be pushed further into isolation and attempt to stay connected as more models of our future are released, may we still prioritize wholeness and acknowledging everything that's happening inside of us, making room for moments of joy, moments of sadness and fear, and moments in between. Returning to Jesus' spit, which is something I'd never thought I'd say in a sermon, there's something far from sanitary about the whole ordeal. However, if I'm going to glean some truth from how this act made possible a moment of healing, I'd say that grace itself is far from sanitary. He makes mud from the dust. I love the physical aspect of ashes used during Ash Wednesday as a way to invite Lent. It's a reminder of where we come from and where we go and of possibility. It's not just the ashes of world denial or bodily mortification, but the ashes of transformation, of awakening to beauty and love, of seizing the moment. Too many people before us have attempted to define grace, to put walls around it and make it a message of purely expected, predictable measures. Grace either loses its power completely or forces the people who believe it into those same boxes they created. Sanitized grace looks like communities that show up and pretend that resurrection happened and now everything is perfect. The Bible is literally littered with calls to be radical. One's often ignored for the sake of a sanitized picture of grace that just calls us to be good people. But spoiler alert, uh, all of you probably already know. Sanitized grace will not cure racism. 
Sanitized grace is for those operating with privilege who already have enough, who aren't convinced that they need to act on faith. Sanitized grace is following Jesus only until it starts to hurt or make a difference in the world, disrupting the status quo. A quote that I found um, a couple years back, but really got me thinking, goes like this. You cannot sanitize grace. You can't stuff it into a blue blazer and make it wear tackies. Grace is messy and offensive, and it, I would say, almost always misses church. To expect God to pump prefabricated plastic moral people out of a religious factory is to neuter grace and chain it inside a gated community. God meets us in our mess and pushes holiness out the other side. Now all this is to say, please don't take this as an invitation to go spit in the dirt and hope that it will heal coronavirus. Also, as I mentioned on Wednesday to our group, I think it is incredibly ironic that Bethel closed all of its healing rooms for fear of spreading the virus. As we've learned through the series on Lent, that there's a difference between the truth that we take from the passage of what's trying to be communicated and what should not be applied literally. Whether it's a Bible producing a magical oil or any other out of the box quote unquote miracle, Ryan is right that Christians often believe too much. Instead, I think what we can learn is a lot more practical and looks a lot more like the tangible move Jesus made by breaking boundaries with people like the women at the well from last week's message. So then what are we left with? What does the lectionary text offer us in this unconventional yet traditional, this surprising yet expected time? In the Ephesians passage, the Greek word peripateo is used. Literally, it means to walk around, but is commonly used um, throughout Paul to denote appropriate Christian conduct. It's akin to our use of the word walk in the phrase, you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? As a reference to how one lives their lives in concrete ways. So how are we, Mission Hills, called to parapateo, to walk together even as we are apart? Disney Plus, which is basically Netflix but for Disney movies, released Frozen 2 early for people home because of the pandemic. I hadn't seen it yet, and I'll be real, Disney is my go-to when I need to cry to help get my processing started, but don't know how to. If you haven't seen the Frozen movies, the quick summary is that there are two sisters, their parents pass when they're young, big surprise, according to Disney. One of them has powers and one doesn't. The first movie, one of the sisters, Elsa, spends her entire time trying to conceal her powers until eventually realizes that she can do good with them. And honestly, I don't feel like I really spoiled that much. It's been out for a while, y'all, but if you want to watch it, I'll give you the password to my Disney Plus account. You're welcome. But anyway, movie two is a continuation of their journey. Anna and, Anna and Elsa are super close, and they have learned to pretty much always depend on each other. At one point, they get separated as they are both pursuing their journeys towards restoring the kingdom and fighting off the evil. 
during one scene, I'll try not to give away too much for this one, but more or less, it looks like Anna has lost everything and everyone. And it being Disney, of course, you know there's going to be a song moment here. It's going to be a thing. Then comes, honestly, one of the most beautiful songs about coping with grief in this children's movie. And Anna is talking about what she can do to just do the next right thing. She's not thinking about the far off future. She doesn't know what else is going to come. And she gets overwhelmed trying to overcome her grief too quickly. So she just focuses on how she can take her next right step in the midst of this all-consuming grief. I think as we look around at what's happening right now, our separation from one another, the panic, the fear, I think that Peripoteo is just doing the next right thing. That might be washing your hands again, or reaching out to someone you know, or hosting a Zoom happy hour like Josh is doing. I don't know what it means for you personally, but as we approach this week, may we find equal acknowledgement of the light and the dark in our world by doing the next right thing. For timing, we are two weeks away from the 52nd anniversary of the assassination of MLK. King was one who called the church to repent not only for the actions of those with evil intentions, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Like King's letter from a Birmingham jail, today proper challenges all of us to ponder what it might mean for good people not to be silent in this present evil age, but rather to live openly as children of light called to goodness, justice, and truth-telling. So in any way that we can, even in the midst of the unknown, may we find one another, may we love one another, and may we be called to straddle the line between light and darkness, to see it all and count it good, to do the work of spring cleaning, of mind and body, of house and home, and use the space of Lent to re-examine the spaces in our lives that we haven't given enough time to.